Today's scripture comes from Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 24. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived <coughs> children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens who, whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? vessels of wrath prepare for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the jews only but also from the gentiles this is the word of the lord thanks be to god thank you very much good morning hey good to see all of you guys i missed you it's been uh a while since I've seen you last, and uh, last Sunday, my wife and I and our family visited another church out in the Chicagoland area, and it just reminded me of how much I love this church so much. I especially want to welcome those of you who might be visiting us for the first time. If you're here at the invitation of a friend, coworker, sibling, guest, thank you, thank you for joining us today, especially if you are not a Christian. We know that coming to a, a foreign place where people do weird things like worship and sing praise songs can be quite uncomfortable, but we hope and pray that, that as you participate in this worship service and as you listen to today's message, uh, you will feel more settled and even get to a point where you might be even keep your journey of investigating Christian faith, uh, we would love to come talk to you afterwards. So welcome again. Uh, without further ado, let's bow our heads because as Pastor James says, this is a mammoth of a sermon today. So let's bow our heads and ask for God's help. Father, we pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, we know that you are a God who speaks. You are a God who is not silent. You are a God who is not passive. You are a God who is distant. Instead, you are a God who is 
Heavenly Father. And we pray now that as we come to you as your gathered children, that you would feed us the word, that through the teaching of the scriptures, that our hearts would be awakened, our minds would be made clear, our souls would be given conviction so that we could live out the very calling that you have given to us, the purpose to which we have been made. Father, we pray that no matter what we have gone through these past six days, that what we are about to receive from you now will empower us, will encourage us, and equip us for what is to come in the next six days moving forward. We pray now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let me ask you a question. Can you remember the last time you discovered something about someone whom you thought you knew everything there is to know? Can you remember the last time where you discovered something about someone whom you thought you knew everything there was to know? And I'm not talking about some celebrity that you obsessively follow. I'm talking about a dear loved one who you think you know like the back of your hand, whether it's a best friend, whether it's a loving parent, or even a faithful spouse. Have you ever discovered something new where you thought there was nothing new to discover about your loved one? And can you remember the reaction that you had when you made that discovery, that sense of estrangement, alienation, that sense of distance and uncomfortableness because this person who you thought you knew so well all of a sudden seemed like a total stranger. You know, this uncomfortable uncertainty or this this uncomfortable alienation, that can also happen to our relationship with God if you are a follower of Jesus. Yes, one of the oddest things that happens as you keep studying the Bible as a follower of Christ is that every now and then you'll come across a topic in the Bible that will make God go from looking like a wonderful father figure who you love deeply into a complete stranger to where now all of a sudden this sense of trust, this sense of confidence is now all of a sudden seem uncertain, shaky to the point where you're not sure if you think you really know him at all. And one particular topic that has this effect on so many Christians is the one that we're studying today, the topic of predestination. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, if Pastor John, what you're saying is true, why are we talking about this topic? Why are you risking causing our relationship to God to feel estranged and alienated? Well, it's because, as Pastor James says, we're beginning today our short summer sermon series, Shoebox. And the whole point of this series is to uh, go over the topics that you guys a few months ago submitted as topics that you wanted to address behind this pulpit because either they were difficult to understand or difficult to accept. And so today, that's what we're going to do now. We're going to tackle the first topic that was drawn to my attention in this Shoebox series, and that is the topic of predestination. The doctrine of predestination. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the classic text that teaches this very topic, this very doctrine, Romans chapter 9. And as we do, we're going to see three things with regard to what predestination says. Number one, we're going to talk about what predestination says about those who are saved. Then we're going to talk about what predestination says about those who are not saved. And finally, we're going to end it with what predestination says about the God who saves, okay? What predestination says about those who are saved, what it says about those who are not saved, and finally, what it says about the God who saves, okay? Let's jump right in. First, what predestination says about those who are saved. Now, it goes without saying that the Bible has a lot to say about a wide variety of different topics and issues and things with pertaining to life. For example, the Bible will teach you on how to have a happy marriage, how to raise healthy, stable children, how to engage in, 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 in political discourse, how to fight for economic 
justice against economic injustice, how it teaches you how to love your enemy as a brother or sister, right? The Bible has many things to say because contrary to popular belief, the Bible offers a comprehensive perspective or worldview that helps you understand properly the nature of reality so that you can thrive in this reality as broken and as dysfunctional as it is. Now, with that said, however, as important as these topics may be, like how to have a healthy marriage, how to engage in loving your enemy and so forth, none of those issues or topics are really the main focus of the Bible. As important as it is to loving your enemy and having a healthy marriage, that is not what the Bible is primarily concerned about. Do you guys know what the Bible is all about, what it's primarily concerned with? It's concerned with the gospel. The gospel. G-O-S-P-E. L, the gospel. Now we ask, what exactly is the gospel? Well, if we go to the first chapter of the very book we're studying right now, Romans chapter one, and we zero in on verse 16, there the apostle Paul will tell us exactly what the gospel is. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. There it is. The gospel, according to Paul, is God's power in salvation, or if I could put it more simply, it's God's active work in saving people, okay? Christianity is the faith that is fundamentally about getting people saved. That is the one thing and really the only thing that distinguishes it from any other religion that is out there today or ever was. Other faiths have other focuses, other priorities, right? such as enlightenment, ethical living, cultural domination, detachment from a world of suffering, right? But Christianity has its focus and its priority primarily on getting people saved, which begs the question, what exactly is Christianity trying to save us from? Well, we begin to answer that question when we consider what Paul says again in the first five verses of Romans 9. So let's look at it again. Starting in verse 1, we read, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Paul begins our passage by notifying us about how overwhelmed with sorrow he is, to the point where he says, quote, I have anguish in my heart. Now, those are some heavy-handed words to where we ask, what in the world could make Paul, who is usually a pretty emotionally stable dude, what would cause a guy like that to be this sullen, this depressed, this downcast? What is causing a man who's normally so stable to be so unstable the way that he's speaking here? Verse 3, read it again. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, Just in case you didn't really understand what he's saying here, let me read this verse again in a clearer translation that spells it out more smoothly. This is the NLT, the New Living Translation version. Listen to what it says. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. If 
that would save them. It turns out that the reason for Paul's sorrow, the source of his unceasing anguish, finds its source in the fact that his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites, the nation of Israel, are not saved. Or as he puts it, cut off or cursed from God. They don't have salvation. Now, when you understand that and you let that sink in and you chew on that for just a moment, you come to clearly understand what exactly we need to be saved from. And what is that? We need to be saved from ourselves. Jews, Israelites need to be saved from themselves. Let me explain. If there were any group of people on the earth who were set up to succeed, to thrive to the point where it would have been virtually impossible for them to ever fail in the eyes of God, it would have been the nation of Israel, okay? Because consider what Paul says about his own people in these verses. He lifts off some of the incredible privileges, the incredible blessings that God has given to them. He's given them the adoptive status as children of God. He's given them the dignity of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, kind of like the way, you know, the gay community felt dignity when they were given the law of marriage. And not only that, they were given the promise of the land of Canaan, the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey, which basically refers to economic and cultural prosperity. God showered Israel with such incredible blessings. It would have been to where they would have to work harder to screw it all up rather than to succeed. And yet, if you read the Old Testament, you come to discover that somehow, some way, Israel did manage to screw it up. How does a group of people who have been cushioned with the most advantages known to man, economic advantages, uh, cultural advantages, military advantages, educational advantages, and yet still end up cursed by God? Well, we know it can't be because God wanted to curse them. No, quite the opposite. It says God blessed Israel. He blessed them abundantly. He said it in these first five verses, right? Which means who are we left with? We're left with Israel themselves, right? Israel themselves are responsible for the curse that God has given them. Israel, it turns out, bit the hand that fed them. And what that tells us is the greatest enemy that Israel had to contend with was themselves, the enemy within. And believe it or not, this enemy within was not only Israel's greatest enemy, It is also the greatest enemy of every human being that walks on this earth, including you, including me. You see, the story of Israel is really the story of humanity. It's your story. It's my story, which means all of us in here have the same common foe that Israel had. The greatest enemy that is committed to our own self-destruction is ourselves, the person that you look at in the mirror. Why? Because every single one of us within us are committed to, to open rebellion against God. That's why. Pastor Brian Hedges uh, puts it this way. He says this, quote, Deliver me from that evil man myself. This prayer, credit to Augustine of Hippo, strikes a chord in the echo chambers of my heart, but the chord is minor and turns sour. I find a strange, sorrowful comfort in the prayer, but it also forces me to face an awful reality about myself. Something inside me hates God. There is something in me that is anti-God, opposed to him in thought and intention, rebellious to the core. I'm at war with myself. I'm at war with myself. That's such an interesting way for this pastor to conclude 
in light of this awareness that he has that there's something inside of him that hates God. How does he go from, I know there's something in me that hates God, to the conclusion, I'm at war with myself? Well, you begin to make sense of it when you consider what the Old Testament says about God. Specifically in Psalm 36, verse 9, it says that God is the fountain of life. And if you remember that these words are written in the context of the Middle East where it's constantly hot and humid and dry, where there's barely any water, where people could die of thirst any moment, you know what he's saying. He's saying that God is the source of life. And for having something inside of you that rejects God would be analogous to your own body rejecting clear, clean water in a time when you are dying of thirst. You see, that is the whole point the Bible is trying to teach us when it comes to God and us. The Bible says that when you hate God, you are really hating yourself because God is the source of life. He is the source of your own life. And for you to reject him isn't a way for you to reject your own life, your own existence. It is self-destructive. Now, when you realize all this, do you realize what all of this tells us? It tells us, that if God is going to save us from our greatest enemy, namely ourselves, he is going to have to do it without our cooperation. You know why? Because we would never cooperate with the God who is trying to save us because we are in such hostility to the God who is trying to save us. And this is something many of you in here who are Christians, who call yourselves Christians, need to grasp because many of you in here erroneously believe that the reason why you are a Christian today is because at some point in your past, you chose to be a Christian. You volunteered willingly. You consented into becoming a follower of God. It was because of you choosing God as to why you stand as a Christian today, right? That's what many of us believe. But Paul says in our passage, no, that's not true at all. And to explain why, he recounts the story of two brothers in Israel's history, twins to be exact. One brother by the name of Esau, who was firstborn, and then the secondborn twin, a man by the name of Jacob. And as we read about Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament, we see that the basis of what ends up happening is because it has nothing to do with either the personal or individual responses of these individuals. For example, it says that Jacob I love, Esau I hated. And what that basically means is God ends up saving G- Jacob, but he chooses not to save Esau. And notice what Paul says in verses 11 to 13 as to the basis of why God does this. He writes this, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. Notice what Paul says. Before either Esau or Jacob were born, which means before they had a chance to do anything good or bad, God already decided that he would save Jacob and he would not save Esau. That's what Paul means, by the way, when you're referring to election. Election is simply a term the Bible uses to referring to God choosing to save someone apart from that person doing anything good or bad. That is what election is, okay? 
Now, when you realize all of this, you come away with the recognition that the Bible has a complete opposite understanding to the understanding that most of us has as to why we are Christian. The Bible says the reason why you are a Christian today is not because you chose God to be in your life, but because God instead, before the foundation of the world, chose to have you in his life and to save you from your greatest enemy, namely yourself. In other words, you did nothing, absolutely nothing to create, to establish your relationship with God through Jesus. God did everything in order to create and establish that relationship with you in Jesus, right? That is what predestination says about those who are saved. It says that we who are saved, we who are believers did absolutely nothing. We contributed nothing. We, we willed nothing. We consented to nothing. We volunteered nothing when it came to our salvation. Why? Because if God waited for us to do that in order for us to get saved, we would never have done it. Because we have such hostility and open rebellion against God. Now I know... That what Paul is saying here makes us very uncomfortable, very unsettled, not necessarily because of what he says about Jacob and those whom he represents, namely those who are saved, but what he says about Esau, right? The other brother and those whom he represents, those who are not saved, right? Because let's be honest, at first glance, when you look at God's treatment of Esau, right, where he says, before Esau was born, I hated the guy, right? That just makes God come across in a completely different way that doesn't match how many of us might see God now. It it, kind of makes God look like a complete stranger, whereas before you thought you knew him so well, a God who was so trustworthy, so loving, so good, and yet you see him interacting the way that he does with Esau, and you're like, wait a minute, this just seems out of character. What are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to process this so that we can still maintain the conviction that we have that God is still good? Well, that's a great question. And the answer leads me to my next point. What predestination says about those who are not saved. You know, as a father of four, soon to be five, one of the frequent complaints that I hear coming out of the mouths of my children, especially my oldest, is, Daddy, I didn't do it. I didn't do it, Daddy. Right? Usually, this comes out of Kara's mouth, and now it's starting to come out of Judah's mouth, and it's slightly coming out of Leah's mouth, but I'm not sure because I can't always understand what she's saying. But basically... <laughs> They're saying, Daddy, I didn't do it. And the reason why is because they're about to be disciplined for something that they feel they are not responsible for, right? They're saying this all the time, right? Whether it's just leaving trash on the floor or leaving their toys unattended to where I have to step on them and like I have a bruise for like a whole week. You know, it's this idea that, Daddy, I didn't do it. I shouldn't be held responsible for something that I personally did not do. And you know what? They're absolutely right. And I say that not because I'm their father and I want to believe everything that they say, but rather because what they say is in agreement to what the Bible says. When it comes to God's punishment, when it comes to God's condemnation, it's always in the context of personal responsibility. In other words, there is never a moment where God will punish or condemn someone apart from their personal sins. And to give you proof, Here's a couple passages of scriptures to verify. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. Proverbs 9, verse 12. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. 
Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for their parents' sins, and the parents will not be punished for their child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. And finally, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. The Bible consistently teaches that when it comes to the punishment of God, the condemnation of God, right? It's always in the context of the person who is being punished and condemned, suffering for their own personal sins. Again, God never punishes, he never condemns someone apart from the personal sins of the person who is receiving such condemnation and punishment. That is a fact. And because that is a fact, we can't help but to scratch our heads when we read verses 11 to 13. Read it with me one more time. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him it calls. She, their mother Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That last statement, Esau I hated, the uncomfortable phrase, according to biblical scholars, is not an emotional statement. I was like, oh, I just hate you, Right? Like, like you're a hater of somebody, right? But it's simply the Bible's way of referring to God's condemnation of Esau that eventually leads him to him being in hell, okay? Now, when you couple that, however, with what it says in verse 11, that Esau, you know, receives the status apart from doing anything good or bad, you can't help but come to the conclusion that God does seem to condemn Esau as well as those whom he represents, the unsaved, apart from any consideration of their personal sins. And if that is true, that means God does ultimately reject. He does ultimately condemns people apart from their personal sins to where they don't personally do any of the things that make them deserving of punishment and condemnation. Now, Paul is very well aware that you can easily come to that conclusion. And so he immediately responds to what he does in verse 14. What does he say? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Notice what Paul is emphasizing here. What is he saying? Look, I know you think God looks unfair. He looks unjust, but he is not because God is not unjust. There is no injustice in God, which is really Paul's way of saying God is a just good God, why does he need to emphasize this so quickly, so immediately after what he says in verses 12 and 13 and 11? Because he wants to eradicate the thought that's immediately going through your minds right now. And that thought is, does God create people specifically for the sole purpose of hurting them, condemning them, rejecting them, sending them to hell? Is that what God is doing? Does he create some people, right, for the exclusive and sole purpose for no other reason other than to condemn, to punish, and to send them to hell, right? Paul says, no, it's not. Because if that is true, right, that would make God the creator of sin. And if God is the creator of sin, that makes him the creator of evil, right? And God, according to Paul, is not evil. He is just, he is good, Right? He is the one who ensures that all good things come to pass. That's why Paul says, don't be ridiculous. Don't speak nonsensically. God is a just God. Consider these words from theologian R.C. Sproul. 
Listen to what he says. God is not the author or the creator of sin. God does not choose to create people in a fallen condition so that he can condemn them to eternal damnation. It is not God's purpose to force people to sin and then punish them for that sin. I do not believe that God created people wicked and then punishes them for their wickedness, nor is Paul teaching that here in Romans 9. Does God proactively, intentionally, willfully create people only so that he could destroy them? Paul says, no, absolutely not. Right? What is R.C. Sproul saying in this quote? He's saying God does not doom Esau and those whom he represents to a predetermined fate where people are hopelessly doomed and they can't do anything about it. No, Paul and theologians like R.C. Sproul who study this extensively say scripture is clear. The basis of why God punishes, the basis of why God condemns is because of the personal sins of those who are condemned, those who are punished, period, period. Now, for some of you who are a little stubborn and want to make my life more difficult, you're like, uh, sorry, it's not period for me. This is not settled. And I'm going to use the Bible to explain it and to justify my stubbornness. Look at what it says in verses 70 to 24, Pastor John. All right, let's look at it. Starting in verse 17, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name, name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will then say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? even of us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. <laughs> that does not sound good. Wait a minute, maybe I'm not done yet. huh? Because in fact, it does sound like God intentionally does create people for the sole purpose of destroying them, for the sole purpose of condemning them. I mean, when you read God being described as someone in verse 18 who hardens whomever he wants, and then you also read what he says in verse 22, that he's preparing a place of destruction for those he is condemning, Man, it almost does sound like that it's God who's personally responsible for the condemnation of the unsaved, not the unsaved themselves. And then, of course, when you read the objection that Paul hypothetically poses that an unsaved person might say to God when he's before God in judgment, why have you made me like this? I can't resist your will. You get even more discouraged to Paul's response, which presumes to be a representation answer of God. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? You know, if I had to imagine what a poor North Korean child would say to Kim Jong-un, like, President, why do you govern the way that you do to where me and my parents are starving? This is how I imagine Kim Jong-un would respond. Who are you to come talk back to me, right? What are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to process this? You know how, Paul says? Go look at Pharaoh. Take a look at Pharaoh, verse 17. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you'll know the Pharaoh that Paul is referring to. And those of you who are not familiar with this story, let me give you a quick synopsis. At one point in Israel's history, they were enslaved in the nation of Egypt for 400 years. 
For 400 years, the nation of Israel were enslaved to where they were brutalized, they were beaten, they were tortured, they were raped. Their children were killed. Innocent children were murdered by the hundreds and thousands, right? And during that time, they're crying out to God, Lord, help us, Lord, deliver us, Lord, save us. And so God responds by sending his prophet, the servant, Moses. And Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh. You remember those famous words that Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And for those of you who are familiar with the story of the book of Exodus, or you watch the Prince of Egypt, whatever the case you do, right? I know some of you guys depend on Disney to help you with your Bible knowledge and you do with actually reading the Bible. Shame on you, okay? But either way, it'll help you either way, right? But you remember how Pharaoh responds to Moses? No, right? He stubbornly refuses. He digs his heels in, right? No matter how much God brings against Pharaoh to humble him, to get him to obey him, he refuses to obey, right? And to display his stubbornness, you find a phrase scattered throughout the book of Exodus that describes Pharaoh's unwillingness to obey God. You remember what it was? It says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, right? You see that phrase scattered throughout the book of Exodus to to, to show that Pharaoh was unwilling at all costs to obey God. But here's what's interesting. As you keep reading through the book of Exodus, you find another phrase that parallels that statement. And you know what that statement is? It says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Interesting. Sometimes when it's describing Pharaoh's disobedience to God, his personal sins against God, it says that he hardened his own heart. But then at other times it says that God was hardening Pharaoh's heart. What is it? How does it work, right? What is this relationship? What is the dynamic here of what's going on, right? What's the cause and effect here? There's really only two options, right? Either A, God is imposing his hardening influence over Pharaoh to where Pharaoh has no choice but to harden his own heart because God is imposing his God power over him to where he makes Pharaoh harden his own heart, which basically means he's making Pharaoh sin against him. Or it could be that God chooses to not intervene in what Pharaoh is already doing to himself, lets him go his own way, and as a result, Pharaoh hardens his heart more harder, more harder to the point where it leads to the exodus, right? Here's the question. Which one is it? Because in one instance, God is actively, intentionally, and proactively causing Pharaoh to sin. Whereas in another situation, God is just standing back and letting Pharaoh go his own way. Where he himself is personally motivating and inspiring himself to go. Which one is it? Can we know? Well, consider what Paul says in the middle of verse 22. You see what Paul says there? He says, what if God endured with much patience. You see that phrase? What if God endured with much patience? You know what that phrase means? It means God delays his condemnation of those who are not saved. That's what it means. When it says here that God is delaying, you know, or excuse me, he's enduring with much patience against those who are in open rebellion against him, that's simply another way of saying that God is delaying his wrath and his condemnation on those who are unsaved. He restrains himself from acting out in judgment against those who are in active rebellion against him. That's what it's saying here. Now, here's the question. Why in the world would God do this? Why would God withhold his just punishment, his wrath, his condemnation upon someone in open rebellion, even when that open rebellion is causing so much victims to suffer around him because of it? You know why? 
The apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 9. Listen to what it says. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, namely to judge sin, right, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone, everyone to repent. What is Peter saying? He's saying God restrains himself, right? He proactively keeps himself back. He doesn't proactively push himself forward to punish someone. He restrains himself from punishing someone. Why? So that every single person, everyone, the Greek word is pan, right? Everyone would come to saving faith, right? Everyone would come to saving faith. Let me ask you. Is that the behavior of someone who is actively, proactively trying to get someone to sin against him so he could punish them? Or could it be the behavior of someone who's doing the complete opposite, doing all that he can to keep himself from doing what he knows he eventually has to do but doesn't want to do, which is to judge and condemn somebody, right? Putting all this together, what does it tell us? It tells us when it says that he hardens whomever he wills. It doesn't mean that God is intentionally imposing, you know, sinful influences, sinful desires upon someone to where they have no choice but to sin against God and therefore get punished by God. No, it simply means that God is no longer restraining himself, but that he's releasing his wrath by letting that person do what he wants to do on his own, right? Listen again, theologian R.C. Sproul. In God's ultimate act of judgment, he gives sinners over to their sins. In effect, he abandons them to their own desires. So it was with Pharaoh. By this act of judgment, God did not blemish his own righteousness by creating fresh evil in Pharaoh's heart. He established his righteousness by punishing the evil that was already there in Pharaoh. One of the most scariest things that God can do is when he finally says to you, if you don't want to do thy will be done, then I'm just going to say to you, thy will be done. If you don't want to do my will, and if you're not going to take advantage of this long life filled with blessings you don't deserve in the hopes that you would come to your senses and repent and stop living in open rebellion against me, then fine, go, go. And see where it leads you, right? What does predestination say to those who are not saved? You know what it says? The only person you can blame for your condemnation, the only basis of why you can say that you are part of the reprobate of God, those who God chooses not to save, is not because God does not desire or that he was not willing to lead you to repentance, because clearly he is, but it's because you will stay in open, hostile rebellion against where you will not submit yourself in light of the history he's given you, whether in your family history, your career history, your sexual history, your recreational history, your financial history, all of this flourishing of history that he allows you to live out throughout your life, and you still will not give thanks, you still will not turn, you still will not change, and so you end with condemnation. That's what it says about those who are not saved. That is why no one who ends up being condemned could ever say, why are you doing this? 
You know why? He didn't. They did. They did. Now, with all this said, you guys still there? You guys still Christian? <laughs> you still going to come to church still? Okay. At this point, it seems like we've said everything that we've needed to say about predestination, but actually we don't. Um, we haven't, excuse me, because there's still one final thing that we need to come to understand. And this is a way to wrap up this, this understanding of this doctrine. And to uh, unpack it, let me go to my final point, what predestination says about God. Now, maybe you're convinced, maybe you're not convinced. And you see, that really is the basis of the point of this last point. Some of us still may not agree with what Scripture teaches or what I say Scripture is saying. And you're going to be like, yeah, no thank you, Pastor John. I just choose not to agree with that. And you're fine. You, you stand with a whole generation of, of Christians throughout church history who've chosen not to agree to say that this is what the Bible teaches, right? But it also does indicate, does it not, the, 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 the tension and the hostility that there have been between people who do believe in predestination or who believe the Bible, and those who say, no, it doesn't, right? And if you look at it, actually, you can see sometimes the hostility got pretty bad. People have fought and killed over this doctrine in the church, right? And you can't help but to wonder why God puts this in here, especially when you also consider that this doctrine doesn't really hinder the main agenda or focus of the Bible, which again is what? Getting people saved. In fact, some critics of of predestination will say, you know, it's when you believe in that ridiculous doctrine that you people don't want to go on missions. You don't want to do evangelism because after all, if God already predetermined to save everybody, why do you bother even going out? If God is going to do all the work, why even go out and share the gospel? Why do evangelism, right? So clearly... There's a lot of hostility when it comes to this doctrine to where, again, we ask, God, why? Why even put this doctrine here so we can avoid all this unnecessary hostility within the church? Well, Paul would tell us why in verses 22 to 23. Listen again to what he says. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, in order, listen, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand before glory, beforehand for glory. Let me quickly tell you what Paul's saying here in a nutshell. He's saying Christians need to believe in this doctrine. You need to believe in this doctrine. It's for the vessels of mercy. In order for the vessels of mercy to be encouraged of the glory that is awaiting them. What does that mean? Why would he say that? You have to know the context. When Paul wrote this letter, Christians were suffering Deeply, They were being persecuted. Christians were being martyred left and right. In fact, Paul at one point in his life was the one martyring Christians. He was the one killing them, right? And if you read later on, Paul himself would get martyred as well as Peter, as well as James, as well as Thomas, right? A lot of Christians were killed and being persecuted for their faith. People lost their jaws. Families left them behind. People were tortured and killed, burned alive. Why? Because of this belief. Now, let me ask you, if you were a Christian living during this time and you saw friends, family members being murdered for their faith, you know what's going to go through your mind? What if I get tortured and my torture says, well, stop if you renounce Jesus, right? Don't you think you're worried that maybe while you're, I don't know, your toes are being cut off or your bones are being broken, you're going to eventually say, okay, I, I don't believe in Jesus, right? I'm not a believer. I renounce Christianity, You ever get worried about what could happen to you, especially when Jesus says, those who deny me will be denied by my father and me in the next. I'm like, oh gosh, 
and you get worried about the stability of your faith that's contingent on your faithfulness and your fearlessness in the midst of persecution, what do you do about that? How do you find comfort? This is how you find comfort. Because what predestination says about God is that no matter how much you fail, no matter how much you give up and renounce me, right, you will still stand in eternity with me. See, predestination was meant to be a doctrine to comfort people who are suffering severe persecution. When they felt unsettled about their own ability to hold on to their faith, Paul would say, don't worry. If you can't hold on to your faith, God will hold on to you, right? Don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. Don't hide and keep your mouth shut. Go out, proclaim the gospel, no matter the consequences, because even if you fail, even if you cower, even if you renounce me, I have chosen you before the foundation of the world and you will stand with me. The doctrine of predestination teaches that our God is a faithful, forgiving God. You see, that is what it gives us comfort in the midst of persecuting times. You're thinking, well, pastor, I haven't been worrying about that lately because we're not living in real persecuting times. Yeah, for you. But what about your brothers and sisters across the world? Do you know right now, according to modern missionary uh, studies, There are more Christians being murdered for their faith now in the past hundred years than there have been in the entire history of the church. I'm not kidding. There are more Christians today being murdered for their faith. Think Nigeria, Joss, Nigeria. Think China now. Why do you think Paul and, uh, excuse me, Peter and Carissa can't even go back right now? There is severe persecution. Well, how come I didn't hear about it on the news? Yeah, why haven't you? Could it be that that might be an indication that should cause you to have red flags? Do you think that what's happening out there isn't eventually going to trickle down in here? Do you not think that maybe within your generation or your children's generation that there might not be a time where someone might come to you and say, renounce Jesus or suffer? What are you going to do? Where will you be? I'll tell you now where you should look down. Look to this doctrine. Look to this because it will psychologically prepare you and it will emotionally settle you so that you can stay faithful and true. And even if you don't, you know your God will always be faithful and true to you. We need the doctrine of predestination and we will need it in the days to come, I promise. But here's my question. Where do you stand on that? Where do you believe in this idea? I want to end my message with a couple next steps for you um, just to help you better apply and live out what we were teaching today. Number one, if you're here, you're not a Christian, and today's message really kind of convicted you that this is the truth and you're ready to embrace it and make Jesus Lord and Savior, take this time now to go to God in prayer and make Jesus the Lord of your life. Confess your sins and recognize that he is ready to receive you because he has long-sufferingly waited for you to come to him. And then come talk to me and Pastor James, who would love to help you get started on your new journey of faith. But then for those of you who still want to know more about this doctrine, because I know that one sermon by me or by anyone cannot really open and shut the case. So I encourage you, do some reading, right? Study this. One great book that I found very helpful for me is the one that I've been citing, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, a fantastic theologian who recently passed away this year. That book itself has helped so many Christians in helping us to not only accept but to love and enjoy this idea of God's predestinating love for us in Jesus, okay? Number three, 
Take some time this week in your Oikos group to pray for your brothers and sisters scattered all over the world who are suffering for their faith. You know, it is so easy for us in the States to be so comfortable, so, so pandered to in such a way that we are so desensitized to the sufferings that we're called to share with in this world, our brothers and sisters across the globe. You need to pray for them because some of them are being not mildly made uncomfortable, severely being persecuted. Would you take this time to pray for some missionary friends that you know? Pray for our missionaries, Peter and Carissa, right? They have to seriously consider whether or not they're going to go back. Pray for the nations. Pray for places that have no churches being established whatsoever. We're talking about Southeast Asia. We're talking parts of the Middle East that is predominantly Islamic. We're talking about Northern Africa. Pray for these nations. Pray for North Korea. Pray for the church that's barely going on over there to grow and to thrive in the midst of such severe famine and pain and suffering so that you can feel afresh the sweetness of this beautiful doctrine known as predestination. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to now to really think about this doctrine. Doctrine, we don't talk very often here at NCF, and yet a doctrine that is very relevant to us or will be very soon. God, we pray that no matter where we might stand on what Paul is saying here in Romans 9, we pray that most of all, we would have a humble, teachable heart, recognizing who we are, that we are beloved children of God, and yet we are not God. Oh God, help us to see that you are the God of heaven and earth and that you are good. And whenever we are threatened to feel otherwise or to think otherwise, help us to go back to Jesus, the greatest and clearest and undeniable fact that you are most of all a God of goodness, a God of mercy, a God of love, and a God of compassion. God, would you help us to live this out so that we can move forward and we can have confidence in knowing who you are. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.